0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of Finding Our Way. This is our Southridge member podcast, helping our members get the inside scoop on life in our church. Uh, Yesterday, we launched uh, an annual tradition around here, this year's version of It Takes a Village, where we hear from outside voices uh, beyond our church community. And our goal this year uh, is to hear from BIPOC voices, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, uh, to make us aware of some of the, the realities of racism and privilege, and especially white privilege. And uh, what's interesting is that internally, we also have members and voices and even leaders uh, who live this every day. And so I'm here today with one of our senior leaders, our Ministry Services Director, and a member of our leadership team, Alicia Ha. Alicia, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. And uh, thanks for being here. Yes, thanks for having me. Um, I want to start sort of at the very beginning here, and uh, just I'm going to ask some really dumb questions. So hopefully, there's no dumb questions, just dumb question askers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, Alicia, how long has your family lived in Canada?
1: Um, actually, it's crazy to kind of think it's uh, it'll be 48 years in November, so almost half a century
0: almost half a century, and, and your parents are from Malaysia, is that correct?
1: Uh, my dad's from Malaysia. My mom is actually from Vietnam.
0: She's from Vietnam. Yeah. And uh, and so they moved to Canada 48 years ago. Yeah. And uh, had you and your brother and your sister. Yep. And so you've lived and grown up in Canada all your life.
1: Um, I lived for a very short time. I was actually born in the States. You were born in the States? Yep.
0: Okay, well, that's yeah. a different story. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: For sure, that's for, some, for that's for another time.
0: That's for another podcast, <laughs> right? American <citizen. laughs> yeah. Um So, as you're growing up, predominantly in Canada, we'll say. Yep. As a kid, when could you first remember experiencing any dynamics of racism, or get any sense that maybe you were different? Hmm
1: yeah like my my earliest incident that I still remember, and I would still remember it quite clearly actually would have been when I was in kindergarten. Um, it was winter, and I was walking from home back then it was safer for you to do that all by yourself at the age of four or five um and we didn't live far from the school so um I remember distinctly walking home from school and behind me was an older student and this This boy would have been probably grade five or six. um, And he kind of came up from behind and started like calling me names, things like, you know, um, chink or chopstick or small eyes or um, ugly or you don't belong here or weirdo, all these things and that. And so, um, my first instinct was to try and walk and even kind of run faster in that. But unfortunately, my five-year-old legs in that only took me so fast. And that boy ended up catching up to me. And what he actually did was he subsequently picked me up from behind and tossed me into the ditch. Um, at the time, it was winter, and so it was wet with snow and it was muddy. Um and I can still, like, remember him standing over me, like, above me, um, and, like, laughing. And, and then he kind of took off. And so, yeah, like, that kind of left a, a, a vision in my mind in
0: that for a long time. Yeah, you're still recalling that today. Yeah. Do you remember back as a kid kind of the first impressions of how that made you feel? Obviously, it wasn't a fun yeah. uh, incident, but, but in a deeper way. Like, do you, right. do you have any memories?
1: Yeah, like, I think like, uh, uh, like, especially sort of in those elementary formative years in that, like, um, a lot of those name calling and different things really left me feeling um, less than or really accentuated my difference, or that the fact that I was on the outside, right? Um, I actually didn't have a lot of like, girl friends at the time. Um, the two, two people that I actually hung out with were two guys in that that didn't live far from us. And, um yeah, I think that consistent name calling or being teased for looking different um, made me feel unimportant or that I didn't matter. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, like that bully said, right, that I didn't belong mm. here. So
0: yeah. yeah. And how did you, I mean, this is a kindergarten kid, so mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you're know, you talking about your very early formative years. How, how did you process that? And even how did your parents sort of raise you to deal with that?
1: Yeah, I think um, the way that I kind of processed it was that um, I felt that it was my fault. There was, some, there was mm. something that caused me to be a target or I had done something wrong that made people want to make fun of me or tease me. Um, I mean, I know it's, it's super silly and it makes no sense in that. But um, yeah, I remember my mom, what she had kind of taught me was she said, don't be a bouncing ball. And kind of what she had always meant by that was um, every time someone said something and I would react, it would obviously get that person more excited to say more things, right? So she's saying, play like a deflated ball. Somebody who's unreactive, then that person lose interest in making fun of you because they're not getting a rile out of you, right? Like, or getting getting you all... Um,
0: yeah, making a reaction.
1: Totally, yeah. So... So, yeah, I, I distinctly remember that, the bouncing ball piece. My father and I had a different bit of approach in that. He would have always reminded us that we were foreigners in a different world or a different country in a different world um, and that we needed to be the best in everything that we did, whether it was school or sports or activities. Um, and the way that he kind of put it was by being the best, it doesn't give people the opportunity to look down on you. Um, and i think that this would have sort of come from his own experiences here right um, a lot of a lot of white folks would have thought when they met him that he either worked in a restaurant or in a laundromat or a convenience store um, and they were always surprised that he was actually a professional engineer so
0: yeah i mean looking back on those that that incident and those messages how would you say that those Early formative experiences shaped you as a person even today. Mm,
1: yeah. Um, I think some of those experiences taught me to I mean one pursue excellence and part of that was kind of not by choice because of the
0: expectation
1: my dad would put on us. Um,
0: yeah, it was my survival.
1: Yeah, totally. And so, so yeah, so I mean, I would I would have like, you know, worked really hard to be the top of my class to gain the respects of my peer. Um, but it also taught me resilience. So you can, you can knock me down, but I won't stay down. And I know for sure that one of my core motivations is overcome. So especially if somebody says to me, um, I don't think you can do that, or, 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 you know, you don't have what it takes. My response is always, Yeah, well, I'll show you
0: kind of thing. So Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, I would say that's great because those are great attributes, but certainly not the the way in which we ideally choose to have those attributes formed. For sure. Um, You know, talk about your growing up years now. I know that, you know, being a teenager is barely friendly to anybody. Uh, But in your case, as you were getting a little older, what role did racism play in making things harder for you? Um,
1: Yeah, racism kind of would have made it harder to, uh, one, love myself or to not think Mm -hmm. that I was strange or different. Um, Yeah, like you kind of said, yeah, your teenage years are already awkward and you're trying to fit in um, and that's hard for everybody but to add
0: on being different, um, is
1: a whole other dynamic, uh,
0: in high school. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was going to say it makes me think of, uh, Ellen Duffield's language of an inner voice or an inner critic. Totally. Yes. And it feels like this, this, this only accentuated and exacerbated the the inner critic in you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. So yeah, like I think, um, for myself, I definitely didn't want to do anything that would make me stand out for the wrong reasons. Right. Um, So, I mean, fortunately I I did well in school, so that was good. Um, I was pretty good at sports as well. So I played volleyball, gymnastics, swim and tennis. Um, So my hazing was minimized, but I had to work hard to fit in, especially with the quote unquote cool girls or Um, and I mean, I would even say there was part of me that I would do things or say things that weren't really nice because I wanted to fit in so badly.
0: Yeah. To differentiate you from other people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um,
0: you know, when you look back growing up, what would you say was the toughest part of facing racism?
1: Um, the toughest part, I think would be actually, uh, avoiding racism, um, and having to give up my identity of who I really am. Um, sure. especially those feelings of shame around being ethnically different, different, um, just so that my surroundings would, um, people would accept me. And yeah, I mean, I think in my case, I think I missed out on learning and being proud about my heritage and culture. Uh, I know my parents, worked hard to keep our culture alive. Um, we still speak like Cantonese and Mandarin at home. Um, but I think I definitely missed out on the ability to embrace my origin, um, like where I come from and that part of my story.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And that truly, that that's really sad. Mm-hmm, totally. That, that you can't embrace that, that identity and pride and wonder for the uniqueness of the way that God made you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, talk to us as you're growing up on, you know, even sort of coping strategies or how did you learn in this world that you were in to, to deal with all of this?
1: Yeah, I think um, kind of like how I, I mentioned in that, right? Like there there's this, there's this thing that's um, called cultural assimilation, right? So, for myself, how I dealt with racism was I worked hard to become more white, so I'm more like everyone around me. Um, I would say that uh, a, a a lot of like you know, my energy would have been around like dressing like you or thinking like you, um, talking like you, and and not to draw attention to me. Um, I remember my mom actually talking to a friend back long time ago, and that about an actress in Hong Kong. And this actress had mentioned that there was no way she would move to North America, regardless of how much money Hollywood would give her, because it would be an absolute disgrace to have your children become a banana. Um, Mm -hmm. And so my mom's friend said to my mom, and said, Oh, just like your kids, they're yellow skinned on the outside, but white on the inside. And so I remember taking that image to heart because I know that it was such a, it was a stab almost to my mom, right? Like kind of saying, huh, look, you, you've, you've changed your children. Like this actress wouldn't even want to bring her kids into America and stuff kind of thing. Right. Like,
0: so. Well, and I feel like, you know, this is a great segue because this is starting to open up the, the conversation and the awareness around the dynamics of racial injustice and what we call white privilege. Mm -hmm. So, you know, first things first, just to kind of call this as a bit of a timeout, what would you say is the difference between the behaviors of racism and what we call systemic racism, the behaviors versus the system? Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah. Like I think first, firstly, I'd want to be crystal clear that like, I think racism is not something that's genetically passed down. Um, It's a learned behavior from your environment. Um, And so behaviors of racism would be things that you say or do in order to um, oppress the other person based on their race and ethnicity. Um, So, for example, it would be like name-calling or or even, um, you know, recently I was listening to um, a podcast and they were talking about Backhanded compliments in that. Right. Like these are these are things that like people would say and don't realize these are racism racist behaviors, things like you don't talk like them or or I mean, I've had lots of people say you don't sound Chinese, like, you know, implying mm-hmm. that there's something unworthy or that it's less than. Right? Yeah, you're a,
0: pretty yeah, you're pretty for a black girl.
1: Right, right. yeah, there's yeah. this inferiority and superiority dynamic that's happening, even just yeah. by those those compliments.
0: Um, yes yeah, so, you know, differentiate that from systemic racism. Yeah,
1: so where systemic racism is more um, whether they're existing policies or structures, something like you know in the workplace and that that puts a specific person of ethnicity at an unfair disadvantage because these systems, were created by white privileged people for that same group, right? So, for example, in in the workplace, two people are are applying for a job. Um, a person that has a white sounding name would get hi- more hot. Hi- it would like they would be more um, likely to get hired over a person who had an ethnic name. So,
0: yeah, and the statistics would say that's like two to one, or it, yeah. it, it's it's considerable. Totally. Um, which kind of this kind of frames the question, then, you know, why do white people not see that kind of racism? I think I think white people can see behavioral racism. They can see when someone is behaving in an oppressive way. You know, uh, maybe we can even see the backhanded ways at, at times, although we might be more blind to those. But the behavioral oppression is different than the systemic kind. Talk about why the systemic racism is harder for white people even to see,
1: yeah, I think for the everyday white person, a lot of times they don't see it because because like I said, the system was designed for their benefit um and they just and part of it would be that they actually don't even see that as a benefit um because they've been elevated or given preference above somebody of color, right, and so I think some of that. Those are those blind spots that we don't realize. Um, and I would think that a lot of times people, especially here in Canada, we don't realize that um, this problem exists here also. It, it's not a U.S. problem or it's not like, you know, it happens here in Canada as well, right? So I feel like because it's not as direct and visible, like like the comments or when you say things or do things, but there's just this underlying um, unfairness that happens. That that's why mm-hmm. people would say they don't they don't necessarily recognize there's a systemic um, racism mm-hmm. problem.
0: It's interesting. A couple of days ago, uh, I was talking to my wife about this because one one of our boys had decided because his typical summer jobs were scrapped because of COVID, mm-hmm. he decided that he wanted some money and uh, wanted to get a job. Mm. wanted to buy some things, I guess. So, okay. Um, and so he, you know, thought about it a little bit and decided he wanted to work at a golf course because he liked golf. And so he Googled, you know, six or so area golf courses that were closest to our home yep. and got the phone number, called them up, asked if they were hiring. And a couple said, sure, send us your resume. And so he went and he produced a resume and he sent it to them. And, One of them called him back and a couple days later said to come in for an interview. And he came in for an interview and he came home with the job. Right. Right. This is in the context of like four days. Right. And we were like really encouraging them. We're like, you know, way to go, Simon, you, you, you know, that, that initiative and that, you know, grab life by the, (laughs) by the, by the throat, you know, Yeah. and uh, you know, way to, way to go. And we were certainly, we were proud of his initiative. But as we thought about that, we thought, do we even realize the layers of white privilege in in that entire process yeah. starting with the belief that if you don't have money and you need a job you just decide where you want to work and get one right yeah and then you just call up a bunch of places and get interviews and you just call up and they call you back and off you go and like the whole thing happens so easy and we were just thinking boy like what that would have been like, like you said earlier, like if he had a different name on his resume. Right. Or maybe he sounded different on the phone mm-hmm. or, you know, all of those moments and even the underlying assumptions that he goes through life with that, you know, before you're staring at issues like white privilege in the face, we're just blind to that mm-hmm. and and are comfortable being blind to that because it's to the advantage of white people and, and white families. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll ask you the question. I think we're kind of saying it together, but like, why does white privilege just not go away?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it'll never go away unless white people start realizing that they've been given this privilege and to recognize that there is a problem. Um, Like you said, right. People are comfortable with their privilege and, and don't want to, be made to feel uncomfortable, especially when you're having to be faced with something that's wrong. Right. And so, um, yeah, I feel it's, it's easier when we live in this, you know, things are fine. I'm in my own bubble. Um, I mean, some of the things, some people will even say is that, well, I'm not racist because I don't actually even see color. Like, Mm -hmm. like you, you can't say that, like, you know, in order for things to change, you have to see color. Right. Because by you saying that you don't see color, you're actually diminishing the fact that I or we are different and that should be celebrated, appreciated and welcomed. And so yeah, you're
0: failing to see and embrace the diversity of the wonder of how God made us.
1: Totally. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and you know, I think for us as a church, all those who are, are listening in, I mean, this is really the crux of why we've been diving into this this series right now and, and even beyond, uh, not just because it's trendy, but because following Jesus has always been about relinquishing privilege mm-hmm. to elevate the status of the less privileged. Right. That's the way of Jesus. I, I think, you know, for a lot of us, we might want to say, hey, it's great that I've been dealt a better hand than other people, or I've got the, you know, the royal mm-hmm. flush of of privilege, so to speak. Well, good for me. Right. You know, yep. off I off I go. I, I I'll just be a kind person, or I'll just you know not be a mean person with that privilege. But the way of Jesus is actually in discovering that, voluntarily relinquishing that to empower those around us. Yeah. And Absolutely. so that's the 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 direction that we want to head. Now, mm-hmm. you know, fast forward to these days, Alicia, you're yeah. now a grown woman yep. in 2020, yep. and yet you still face here in the Niagara Region of Ontario, Canada, you still face realities of racism every day. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, give us
0: give us a recent example.
1: Yeah, like I would say, like as sad as I am to say this. Yeah, I, w- I for sure would have some examples right here, only a few kilometers away. Like um, like friends, I want you to know, Canadians unfortunately are no different than Americans, especially when they're afraid and ignorant. And I, I'm gonna just say that that's no excuse to treat another human being that way. So sort of when coronavirus started to make its appearance here, I'd say probably the first two weeks back in March and that, um, my dad was actually out at the bank, uh, and when he was leaving, he actually got accosted by a man loudly yelling at him in the parking lot, telling him to get out of here, to go back to China, and that this Chinese virus and everything that is happening to Canadians is his fault. I mean, I can't even tell you how furious I was like, yeah. you know, like first off my dad is Canadian. He's, he's lived here three quarters of his life for goodness sake. Like yeah,
0: been here for 50 years.
1: Right? Like, you know, and the fact that he's actually from Malaysia, like, you know, there, there's, there's just so many levels of where people are so ignorant and they'll say things and don't realize the impact that they're, they're having. And so I mean, part of white privilege is like, you know, not having to fear when you leave your home or the fact that you may be rudely accosted by somebody while you're just coming out of the bank and that, right? And so, I mean, for myself in that, like I've definitely felt it when we're in these lines waiting to go into the grocery store, the two meters um, social distancing and that. I know for sure the person behind me a lot of times will actually stand closer to the other person behind and that in order to create more space, because there's this fear that the fact that I'm Chinese means that I'm I either have the disease or I'm more prone to it and that I'm going to give it to them. Like, yeah. but what's but what's interesting if you're,
0: if you're Asian, you're a super spreader.
1: Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I'm like, yeah. And, and what's interesting that I've noticed is that as soon as I speak, that person visibly changes in their demeanor their shoulders relax. They're more willing to engage in a conversation with me. It's, it's kind of mind blowing in that, that I'm like, this is what, this is what we're facing. Like, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and the fact that that person has prejudged me without even knowing who I am in the first place.
0: Yeah. As soon as your voice indicates cultural assimilation, then it satisfies them and makes them comfortable.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy.
0: Um, I mean, that's a great example. Are, are there other places where you see white privilege uh, leverage the most around you these days?
1: Um, yeah, like I would say sort of, um, you know, w- when somebody says that that they don't think they have white privilege, right? I think the fact that you say that you don't see that, um, the fact that you're experiencing norm things that are normally... Um, and it's not being seen as something special or something that, you know, it has been created for your advantage. Right. And so, so I think like, you know, at the start of coronavirus and that I'd say, I'd say like in all honesty um, there was a part of me that was actually afraid to kind of go outside because of the experience that my dad had had um, sort of the things that I was feeling, even on that Friday, the 13th in March, when, the it was being labeled a pandemic and everything i'd gone out to quickly grab something so the fact that people would see me down the aisle in the grocery store this one lady she looked at me and then she actually like physically left and went down a different aisle in that like mm-hmm. and i'm like yeah so so i think those are the things that you know when when you don't have to be afraid to leave your home and that that that's a white privilege right? Like yeah, when you don't, yeah. you're not afraid that I, I have no idea if somebody's going to attack me, right? Just because yeah. I'm Chinese. <laughs> so uh, yeah.
0: A little closer to home, what are some of the main ways that you see white privilege leveraged in our church community?
1: Um, I mean, part of it is like at, at Southridge, it, it's hard because we are such a predominant white congregation, right? Like I would say probably 90 to 95% white european descendants and that and so i mean it'd be interesting to sort of see how many of uh, how many of our community would think that there's actually a problem or or how many would even think that things are fine and there's no privilege and that they're they're actually you know they're they're feeling like there's, there's nothing going on kind of thing right
0: like mm-hmm. um I mean, yeah, it just might be a lack of awareness. I and I would say, for purposes of this conversation, what would you today want our members and those listening to know about the realities of racism, especially systemic racism, even around our community at Southridge?
1: Yeah, like I, I, I think around sort of our community in that, I think the the realities are one is that they they exist, and that. Um, even in, in, in slight things. Um, like I think, I think the, the BIPOC community want desperately to be seen, heard and valued just as, as you are. Um, and, and not to have to feel like they have to conform in order for you to see them or even pay attention to them. So, um, yeah, like I, I think some of those things, I feel like, even when we're in the cafe on Sunday mornings when, when we can actually gather in that, like how much of us are, are actually going up to people that are different and, and welcoming them or, or saying hi or, or, or asking them to engage and become a volunteer or, or, you know, all those different things in that, that we would, where it would be easier just to approach another white person. So someone,
0: someone who looks more like us. Yeah. Uh, You know, this is the big reason that we're focusing on hearing from these BIPOC voices uh, in our It Takes a Village series so that we can gain a greater awareness of the realities of systemic racism and and white privilege. So, you know, I would ask you as a senior leader Mm -hmm. and a church member, what gives you hope that Southridge is moving in a positive direction on this one?
1: Yeah, I would say, I mean, the fact that as a church, we're willing to start having some of these conversations, um, that we're starting to listen to outside voices like we did, um, yesterday in our, it takes a village, um, the, the thing, the, the thinking and, and bringing awareness to our community, um, will open people's eyes up. So they know that this is still happening in our backyards in 2020, um, but I'm also ho- I'm hopeful, though, because we're moving in this direction by the fact that, I mean, we have anchor causes like the Migrant Workers Program and that, that we're focusing on the needs of our Black brothers, right? Um, I'm also hopeful and prayerful that we can start having more other, like other causes in that, that will help to disrupt these systemic issues of racism right here in our region. Um, I'm also hopeful wow. that, yeah, the fact that, you know, I'm I am on the leadership team, and, and I'd be the first BIPOC voice, sort of in that senior senior position, and that. So, yeah, those are sort of where I'm. Uh, that would
0: be that would be a true statement. Yeah. So you're historic in that sense. You're <laughs> gonna be the answer to a you be the answer to a trivia question someday. <laughs> um, and and that's really where I wanted to land here, Alicia, because I I, I feel like awareness is great. And especially for the majority of us who are white, we've got tons of ignorance and blindness and even apathy towards subjects like this. So I'm excited for where God wants to take us, even in this series. What would you say, though, that our people can do today beyond just know? What can we do even right now to help to begin to be the change towards a greater degree of oneness in Christ among us and beyond?
1: I mean, yeah, I would say first would be kind of to to look deep inside each of us and acknowledge that there's a problem. Um, We have to see the world as it is and not the world we imagine it to be. Um, To listen, to learn, um, I mean, to really have those conversations where it's especially uncomfortable. Uh, I remember like, so Jeff Mannion and that when he had came, when he had come to our church for vision, um, vision Sunday, he had said to our staff and that, that, um, we were talking about how to diversify our congregation. And one of the things he had said that really struck me was he said, we need to start asking to be invited into their world. So into the BIPOC world and stop asking them to be invited into your world. Uh, Like I think that statement is huge because for myself, I've been invited into many of your worlds, but very few of you have asked to be invited into my world, right? Like you, you, you haven't asked to like, what, what does it, what, what does it look like to be Chinese or, or what are some of the things that, that, you know, um, that you embrace as a Chinese person here in Canada kind of thing. So,
0: Yeah. Yeah, I remember you telling me about a group of friends who were asking you about the celebrating of Chinese New Year, right? And even just engaging in in that level of conversation was a radical experience for you.
1: Totally, totally. I mean, yeah, that, and and that would have been just recently. It it wasn't like yeah. you know a long time ago. So yeah. So that's some of the sadness, right? So that it's
0: yeah. yeah. Well, hey, uh, any final encouragements or challenges to our members when it comes to? addressing our predominantly white privilege and starting to turn the tides and rectify uh, systemic racism among us, if not beyond?
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, first off, I'd want everybody listening today to know that I am also learning, listening, engaging in conversations and trying to do and be better. Um, I know that I'm afforded a lot of privilege as well. And and I don't want anyone to think that I've got all the answers or I'm better than anybody. Um, but my encouragement would be to acknowledge that there's a problem. Um, secondly is to see color, uh, to have the posture of humility, and to remember that people, and I mean all people, want to be loved and accepted just as they are. Not conform to the white ways, but how God intended them to be. And the other piece would be, this is going to take time, right? This, this process is going to take a lot of work. I mean, and I would encourage people not to to quit when it gets hard, because anything worthwhile will get hard. Um, but I believe together, we have the power to create the change we want to see.
0: Hmm. Well, so. That's a great encouragement, Alicia. And for me, I know I'm, uh, you know, my hope isn't even in us as Southridge or us as leaders. My hope is in Christ Mm -hmm. and the vision that he has for what a community uh, that bears his name ought to be, where the Bible talks about every tribe and tongue and nation being one in him. Not one because we're uh, whitewashed, you know, you call it culturally assimilated, but one because we've learned to embrace a unity in diversity. So thanks so much for advocating and championing that in this conversation today. Really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, thanks to all of you for joining in. We'll see you again next week as we continue finding our way together. Take care everyone.
1: See ya.